I'm Cynthia, and you're listening to Quotidian Musings. Every once in a while, we'll unravel topics more suited for evening pontificating than your high school classroom. Episodes flow from solo exploration of ideas to interviews incorporating external perspectives. We will leave you at the end of each discussion with some final takeaways and a short and sweet book-slash-TV-slash-movie recommendation. Today, we'll be looking at the sensitivities surrounding limiting freedom. We live in a hypersensitive world where any opinion can be taken as an insult, where truth must be told slant to avoid insulting someone, where no matter what you do, someone is going to vehemently and perhaps aggressively oppose you. Liberty, your freedom to do anything you wish, is held in such high regard that any breach on that liberty, even justified ones in the name of a health crisis, is taken as offensive. Why does the word freedom stir this feeling of self-righteousness and egotism to the point where we think it supersedes all else? Perhaps we think freedom is so important because of the fights that led to acquiring it. Revolution after revolution, speech after speech, people have demanded freedom from tyranny, from control, and because they thought their omnipotent leaders were in the wrong somehow, whether it be in their management of inequality, decisions on wealth, or wartime policies, The word democracy meant more than a governmental system. It meant fighting for yourself. It meant confidence in yourself. It meant claiming your life and your leaders as your own. Yet over the past centuries, freedom has become entangled with hyper-individualism, with selfishness and egotism that makes us blind to inequality. We condemn anything that threatens our supposed quote-unquote freedom with blind hatred. Advice and scientific evidence are slandered as scams and conspiracy theories. We keep on taking and taking and taking until we're left with nothing but crises of fossil fuels, climate change, fast fashion, sweatshop labor, pollution, deforestation, and we were watching the tragedy of the commons play out in real time. Yet we shrug it off in nonchalance, because what could one measly student do to make a change? If I don't buy the meat, someone else will buy it. If I don't buy that, the Forever 21 shorts, someone else will. What difference could individuals make when the collective effort is non-existent in a hyper-individualist world overdosing on freedom? I think honest discussions about freedom are barely possible in today's world. It's really sad to see. A friend of mine went to the UK after studying here in a Shanghai international school. And whenever she would gush about Shanghai's vibrant city culture or command China for a policy, no matter what the policy is or how many lives it saved or or anything, she'd immediately be tagged as a China lover, a communist. Can we have honest conversations devoid of ad hominem logical fallacies? Without past contempt and blind hatred, but with a blank slate and an open mind. Okay, pessimism aside, this loops back to our talk about freedom and immediate cautiousness whenever seemingly personal decision-making, seemingly because determinists would disagree, is threatened. This brings in an idea Plato talked about in his dialogue called The Republic. In The Republic, Socrates is talking to a bunch of guys on how to create a just city. A bunch of famous allegories and stories come from here, including some that you may know already, like the cave, the sun, the divided line, etc. In a nutshell, Socrates and Plato, they think philosophers should be the kings of this just city because they have the critical thinking skills needed to quote-unquote know best, like Mother Knows Best from Tangled, but without the whole twisted bit. He devises this entire elaborate education program for the philosopher kings, he calls the philosopher kings guardians and auxiliaries, 
And then he's like, okay, since not everyone will have that training or have that disposition to become a guardian, he, pro- he proposes the creators of the city to start a noble lie. A fable for the citizens to believe in, and it's called the myth of the metals, basically saying that every citizen was born from the earth, and that every citizen has a different type of metal inside them, bronze, silver, gold, etc. That sets their social standing. You know that whole spiel nowadays about designer babies and breeding smart people or something like that? Yeah, that whole eugenic stuff, but centuries ago with Plato's Just Society. So why make this noble lie? Why make people believe in this tale to essentially breed elite guardians? Well, Plato justifies this by saying that, hey, parents um, in healthy families imbue their children with certain moral values too. Don't steal, stranger danger, the usual. So just like how parents know with time and experience what the norms of society that should be followed for our own benefit are, to quell the rebellious teenagers, the state could do something similar. This is more commonly known as paternalism, and recently some contemporary authors have been advocating for something called libertarian paternalism, a theory that states that could use a theory that states could use policies to set defaults for people to avoid poor decision making in finances, taxes, stuff like that. They're designed with like freedom and choice in mind. Behavioral economists like Richard Dollar and Cass Sunstein are the main forces behind this idea. The theory is paternalist in that it influences people to make choices that will objectively leave them and others better off. And the theory is, on the other hand, libertarian because people should be free to opt out of the arrangements if they want to, quote-unquote preserving the freedom of choice. But nowadays we see people abusing the claim to freedom of choice to an extreme, to declaring that your freedom is more important than the health and safety of others to refusing to wear a mask in a sterilized facility just to make a point. What point? That the president of a supposed superpower of the world is publicly sanctioning thousands of preventable deaths in a day. That just reminds me of Mill's harm principle, where you can only keep your rights if you respect the rights of others too. Well, clearly that ain't happening. With this mindset, paternalism is exaggerated or associated with nothing but an off-putting big brother dystopian sentiments. Another thing that reminds me of is this philosopher called Maxine Green and her concept of regard in a society. Green is a philosopher who focuses on justifying what she calls aesthetic education. She connects music, study of music, classical music, art forms, whatever, with becoming a more open-minded and self-assured citizen, bridging the gaps between what seems like really far off Um, classical forms of music to social action that we as we know it today and she defines civil society as a place of never-ending dialogue where citizens can come together and connect with each other and she thinks that civil society can't exist without a specific concept called regard and regard isn't something as simple as agreement or consensus it's kind of the opposite regard is Even if I don't agree with you or understand you completely, I still respect you and your significance in this world. Regard is what allows for conscious, alert conversation to happen within civil society. But with concepts like freedom and liberty being almost overhyped to the point where it validates anyone doing anything, anyone believing anything, civil society as Green sees it seems like it's crumbling away. 
there's no potential for conscious conversation because we just default to, well, I can think what I want and do what I want because I have the freedom to do that. Even Thomas Hobbes, the infamous pessimist, warned against this. He lived through the English Civil War, and he saw how much destruction and bloodshed could come from resolvable disagreements or compromises that were broken on the basis of patriotism. He proposed the Leviathan, not as an autocrat, but as a social contra contract. When you sign away a little bit of your liberty to the Leviathan, you yourself become author to the Leviathan. You become author to the entity that rules you. Only then, when the community acts as one, Hobbes thinks, could there be any peace. He thinks this because division and conflict have been what caused mass genocide out of hatred his whole life. So unity is Hobbes' only option. He says a kingdom divided amongst itself cannot stand, and that without man's liberty to do whatever he wants, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A joke that my philosophy professor actually brought up was that he named his cat Brut Brutish because he thought because he thought that was what Hobbes was referring to, like a cat name or something. Anyways, that was a long time ago. Now this is unspeakable and maddening. How dare he breach my freedom? How dare they tell me what to do? But do you know best? Do you trust yourself to make the best decisions for you and those around you? There's a Chinese saying that speaks of three people walking on a street together and how each of them could be a teacher to the other two. Not everyone is perfect. Not No president or leader will know best for all communities and professions. That's why he or she isn't alone and why discussion is so important. Freedom is something that should be handled with care, used appropriately and limited when need be, or shouldn't. There are less extreme versions and interpretations of a Leviathan that we see everywhere today, and there are less pessimist takes on freedom's hype in the 21st century. Now we'll be interviewing Mr. Jordan Finch, a high school history teacher and MUN director, for his thoughts on limiting freedom. Hi Mr. Finch, so today's episode covers freedom and sensitivity around questioning or limiting it. And you are a U.S. history teacher, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on, how, on the concept of how freedom has evolved over time in the United States. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, freedom is like, I actually call it in class, I call it the F word as a bad joke, <laughs> because it's always the word that is used to define America. You know, I think from the very first stages of... Um, you know, particularly European arrival to the Americas, that was always the, the watchword for, you know, the expeditions that went there. Obviously, they're seeking wealth, but they're also seeking a new world and if, maybe a world that will be more free, whether it's religiously, whether it's economically, um, whether it's politically, etc. And I think that, you know, that has evolved throughout time. It's really interesting because in the APUSH course, there's this historian named Eric Foner, who's a very famous um, and great author in my opinion and the whole theme of the textbook that I choose to use for that course is called give me liberty and basically the framework for the textbook is each chapter he's trying to ask the question of what liberty means and liberty and freedom are a little bit different terms but there's a lot of crossover there right the Venn diagrams there's a lot of crossover and you know so it kind of works through those um, chapters 
of American history, whether it's pre-colonial, whether it's the colonial period. So then there's discussions of, like I mentioned, religion. Slavery is obviously a massive concept. Um, but if you're asking, because I think your questions maybe are going to be a little bit more pointed to kind of current events, right, Cynthia? So like then a lot of it is, you know, how should we best define freedom? And like if we can't have economic freedom or if we can't have political freedom or if we can't have personal freedom and civil rights, what kind of a society do we have? And it's interesting to see, I guess, just the kind of like seesaw and which, you know, if you were to plot like those different categories of freedom over time, like chronologically on an x-axis, you know, I would think you would see different things spiking at different times. Um, and, you know, I one of the things that makes me happiest about the age that we live in is I do think those definitions of freedom as your personal rights, ability to choose to function in society, um, you know, those are spiking, you know, whether you see that through, um, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, whether you see it through um, addressing institutional racism, inequality economically, all of these things are still there. Um, but, you know, I, for me, I think we're very lucky to look at that progression as terrible as American history is. And to see that that theme, I think freedom as a word has been abused um, by a ruling class in my country. I also think that's true for many countries. Um, but I do think it is a powerful um, kind of mythic concept. But it's, it's real as well, you know. Um, and, you know, it's just it's tremendously interesting to see how it has evolved over time and how different groups have claimed it or claimed having a lack of it and then fought, you know, and whenever you see that change, then there's a conservative backlash to it. And it kind of goes back and forth, as I'm saying. So I just I love that you asked the question, because I think it's one of the most interesting ways to frame kind of a more analytical view of American history and to actually dig into what that concept means, rather than just using as this kind of hollow uh, stamp that we say that you know that America is the land of the free and that we're fighting for freedom and um, I really enjoy teaching in international school because you know there is less nationalism here because there's a mixture of those different things and people are accepting of those different definitions of what freedom really means. Cool. As an MUN director, you are also conscious of um, international slash global mindedness. I mean, you were talking about how you're teaching at an international school. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think freedom has taken on new meanings and significance beyond the West or beyond the States? Hmm. Well, that's super interesting, right? Because so if you think of an MUN context or a UN context, right, you can go back to the League of Nations and the 14 points and Woodrow Wilson and all of that, which obviously didn't turn out so well for the world in the interwar period. Um, but after World War II, you know, I think a lot of those ideas that you could argue they're from kind of, um, if you're a little bit Eurocentric in your view, you could say they're enlightenment concepts, right? Um, John Locke, Rousseau, Montesquieu, those kind of things. But I do think in that kind of World War II and decolonization period, a lot of those ideas really have spread out. And obviously the world is, well, we can get into this, but um, at least on the surface, 
is is more democratic, I think, and is able to protect a lot of those ideas. And I think they exist. You know, I hesitate to say too much about where we live even, but I think those concepts with globalization and the information revolution of you know, the last two or three decades, um, those concepts are out there. A lot of people are not exposed to them or don't have a clear definition, but um, you know, I do think that those ideals have shaped uh, the world that we see today. And it's imperfect. And you still have that concept of freedom is abused or it said, you know, it's too much and it needs to be restricted because it's going to create chaos in society. You know, the country we live in being, a, I think, a salient example of that. Um, but yeah, I, I also, it's interesting because it's very easy to look at that. And when you use the term the West, like you say in your question, right? Being from there, I'm sure I have a biased view of what that term means and kind of my understanding it. You know, these ideas of um, republicanism, democracy, separation of powers and government, you know, I associate those with, with the United States. But I think those ideas have been around the world in other places, you know, in the Orient, um, you know, in kind of the cradles of civilization for a long time, whether you want to talk about the Mediterranean or whether you want to talk about the Middle East or whatever. Um, it's just we tend to view historically like our age as the most important, you know. And so I do think, though, that that idea of kind of the decolonization movement um, and the information revolution and the globalization of everything today means that um, there is more discussion of it. And I think where you may be going with some of your questions, it's interesting to see, like, is there kind of this is the access like is are things tilting back towards maybe democracy isn't so good. Maybe the U.S. has become decadent. It's not working, right? Um, and the freedom of states' rights and things is, obviously, it's a problem with COVID-19. Um, so it raises a lot of interesting questions. But I think the cool thing about, um, you know, being here, like I said, and also being able to jump on our computers and look up things when we have access, um, we're lucky to have that. It enables that conversation to be really rich. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is reasonable in theory versus in practice, or, or if it could lead to dangerous consequences and breaches, not just freedom, but also privacy. Right. So basically, you're speaking about an idea that the government should be able to both secure individuals' freedoms, but also to have a framework in which like, the government looks out for people. Am I understanding it like, does that definition kind of work? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it is practicable. Um, you know, I, I, I think looking at, so to come back to the United States, for example, historically speaking, it's kind of risen and fallen, I think, in terms of how effective uh, American democracy is in creating a functional state that can serve the needs of all of its people. Um, I think that's basically impossible, you know. Um, I can't think of many examples throughout history in which the needs of all people within a state are served. Um, You know, so, but given that framework, like if you are going to compare to a state like an India or a China that has a very large population, 
Gosh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, uh, I, I think you also have to look at the historical roots of those societies. Um, I think we're, and I'm like trying to speak slowly so that I don't get myself in trouble here. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you could stay, say that China's form of government, it's certainly paternalistic in a way, right? Because it's, I mean, it is a very large and present state in every sense of the term. And there definitely is a sense of welfare infrastructure provided for its people. Now, obviously, that's not going to be totally equal. Um, but at the same time, there doesn't seem to be a lot of loosening the reins. Um, and I think that may have to do simply with the, this, the size of the population here. You know, the U.S. is basically the same in area as China, but it has a fifth of the population. So I wonder whether if you took the United States model of government, which none is perfect, but you have suddenly exploded the population five times, what kind of you know, problems is that going to present? Um, certainly there's going to be a lot greater pressure on the environment. Um, there's going to be a lot greater pressure just on the systems in place to have a functioning society. So, I mean, to come back to maybe focusing on your question, like, I do think it's possible, but I also, my view of governance is if you do have a larger population, it becomes difficult to guarantee rights and stability, you know, um, within the country. And what does that word stability really mean? So I think it's possible, but I think it requires really, um, it requires an excellent educational system to be functional. Because if people are not, you know, instructed about what their rights are, what rights are in general, what is kind of, I guess I would mention like a social contract again, if we want to get into kind of enlightenment terminology. But I think um, civic society in the digital age is, it's pretty underdeveloped. You know, I would argue that democracy was much more vigorous even in the 19th century in the United States than it is now. Um, and people being aware of the role of the government in their lives and their responsibilities as citizens to make it function. I think in today's age, people want both worlds, right? They want a paternalistic state that's going to provide for them, but they also want everything, you know, to be the way that, that they want. Um, and if there isn't a compromise, then I do think it starts to shift back towards just that theoretical realm because people have to be aware of it and having discussions um, in order to have, a, you know, a civil society and a government that can meet the needs of its citizens. I was wondering about... Um now we have an unprecedented third party, I guess. Yeah, technology and social media. And I was wondering how you think ideas of freedom and privacy play out now that we have this other third party um, interacting both with the people, both with the states, both with civil society, and if it's made us hypersensitive in a way, or if it's made us more... Hypersensitive to what, particularly? 
just to everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I worry about our culture a little bit in that it is so based on the worship of the image um, and of, of the spectacle. And yeah, I don't know if like hypersensitivity is the way my brain was processing that, but I don't have a particularly sanguine view of a world in which we have so much information being shared so loudly across so many platforms. Um, if you study, for example, authoritarian regimes, and again, I need to be careful, but let's take those in Europe, for example, right? So take fascist Italy or take um, Nazi Germany, right? Those cultures are about spectacle, right? They're not about engaging critically through text, through conversation, through dialogue, through Socratic means. They're about worshiping collectively, you know, a common kind of mythic image-based culture. You know, Roman society was this way as well. And, you know, obviously was not, I don't know, particularly democratic, <laughs> certainly at, at many points, you know. Um, so yeah, are we hypersensitive I mean, it, it, it is crazy. I think the maybe the the way I would answer that is being like, you know, have you, you guys have probably studied or seen the TED talk on like the filter bubbles, right? And about, you know, your algorithm and your social media or whatever kind of leads you into the echo chamber. So I think we are hypersensitive to maybe new information that we're not focused to it. And people, I think, are threatened by that. Um, and I think that combination of being so bombarded by information and images, but really not in a, a way that is pluralistic is a problem. Um, and I, I don't really know the direction that we're headed. I think you had asked about privacy though too, right? Yeah. So I think there's two schools of thought on this, right? So either it's like, I'm not guilty, so I don't care if people have my information, right? Doesn't matter. Or, yeah, maybe we are hypersensitive about, well, gosh, nothing is private anymore. You know, I mean, I, I just assume that anything that I put online or any information that I have can be collected by some third party and used, whether it's a state, whether it's a corporation, whatever. Um, and that's certainly scary. Um, but, you know, I would like to think that our civic institutions and I would also just like to think that human nature is strong enough to understand, even just intrinsically without a formal education, that we have certain barriers that are acceptable. Um, but you know, there's really powerful economic and military forces out there that, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're sensitive or how loudly we speak up against it. You know, if those concentrate, that's, I mean, that's it. I think history shows a lot of examples of that. Am I particularly worried about that in the short term? I think there are larger problems. I think, you know, the environment and climate change are going to be a more significant issue. I don't know if I answered your question. I tend to ramble. But, yeah. Yeah, if you need to like refocus me or be like, what I meant was actually this. Yeah, just do it. About freedom and privacy, is that kind of what you mean? Freedom, liberty, 
I think this is going to be a very annoying teacher comment to say, but I do really think the importance of um, our educational institutions in molding a functioning civic society are more important than ever because there are threats out there to the fabric of society, I think, that are very real. Um, you know, the issue of privacy is certainly one of data collection and how that could potentially be exploited. Um, but also just kind of the dumbing down of our discourse. Um, you know, that's not even related to privacy. Um, but it certainly relates to the digital age and, and, and to freedom, you know. Um, I think if we don't continue to have really open conversations and a marketplace of ideas about what that word means, if we want to kind of bookend this and come back to where we started, you know, then we allow someone else to define it for us. And that I think history has shown to be a real problem. When you have a consensus around a complex topic that eliminates the gray and makes it black and white, that's when we see I think these inflection points in history, whether they be wars or whether they be um, political conflicts. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I do think it is achievable to have a world in which we have all of this information technology and we can respect individual freedoms while also, um, you know, having security in our society. I do think it's achievable. I think there are plenty of examples in history. I think there are examples today in which it's achievable, but it's hard. Um, and it, I think it takes the work of individuals and societies to to sustain those things. And if we become complacent in them, either in the, you know, I'm not guilty, I don't have to worry, go ahead, take my cookies, all my information, you know. Or if it goes the other way, you know, where it's like, well, I want to have my cake and eat it too. Um, you know, there has to be a balance and that requires um, discussion. So that's where I am just really blessed I think to be a teacher here particularly because I get to work with great students like you guys who are interested in having these conversations and I have faith in you guys you know uh, I tend to be a pessimist but there's no use in that so I always bounce back and say you know I'm optimistic for the change you guys can make um, in continuing these conversations okay thank you Mr. Finch for your time yeah thank you this has been fun Thank you for listening to Quotidian Musings. I am not your host, but I am here to plug a website called The Forage Review. If you're interested in the Quotidian Musings, you might be also be interested in reading some good poems, short stories, creative nonfiction, and prose. So visit www.foragereview.com and read some writing. I hope you have enjoyed this episode because I definitely have. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>